Well, we appreciate your attendance here this morning. I know this is one of those days where it's not easy to get up and to be here, and I look around, and it looks like maybe some of our members are attending in Box Springs this morning. And I know that this week is, yeah, that one takes a minute. And I know that this week is spring break, so we probably got a lot of people traveling too. But at any rate, we're glad that you're here today and that we had this opportunity to spend time together worshiping God and, and strengthening and, and building each other up. I know that there have been difficult days here lately for a good many in our number. There are several among us who have uh, suffered the loss of loved ones, and we all share in that loss to a great extent. And then there are a number of others here who have been struck out of the blue suddenly with very serious illnesses. Uh, all in all, you think about this calendar year, and it's been a difficult one so far for a number of people in this congregation. And I also know that whether it's tomorrow or next week or a year from now, if we should somehow be spared, there are inevitably more difficult days ahead because that's life. That's our common lot here in this world. We're all familiar with the word grief. But more than just being acquainted with it as an abstract concept, we all know the feeling. We know the word, and we know the experience. It's common for all of us. There's a great deal of physical pain and suffering in this world. Think about the pain that comes from, from childbirth, or from broken bones, or from severe cuts, bad burns, gunshot wounds. We could go on and on like this. These are primarily physical, external pain. But there's also pain and suffering of the mind. That's what we call grief. On one occasion, the Apostle Paul was speaking of the many persecutions that he endured, and he lists them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says there, beginning in verse number 24, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then in addition to all those things, he lists, there's the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. It's in this last category that we would list things like the divisions in the churches that Paul had to deal with or the apostasy of some of his co-workers. I think of the, the heartbreaking tone that he takes when he talks about his 
former associate Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says there that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. These are sorrows, griefs, pain in the mind and in the heart. Our external, our physical pain and suffering is often linked with that internal pain and suffering because physical existence is a constant burden to the human spirit. Our body is destined for decay. As they say, the minute that you're born, you begin to die. And that's true for each and every one of us. Diseases, accidents, hunger, all of these things are physical sources of grief. But then there's disappointment, frustration, guilt, loneliness. Those are just a few of the internal things that bring grief to our hearts. We grieve over lost opportunities, over lost time, over lost causes over broken friendships, broken promises, broken homes, broken hearts, and of course, death. You see, grief is universal. Nothing is more true than the fact that grief is universal. The very first Human beings that God created, Adam and Eve, knew the pangs of grief. There was the grief that they felt that day when they discovered the lifeless body of their boy, Abel. And that grief was only compounded by the realization that their other son, Cain, had been responsible for his death. And in the months and the years that followed as Cain was, was driven out and he was exiled, banished from the rest of the family to a place far away on the earth, I can only imagine the grief that they must have experienced. Especially when they thought about and realized their own sins. Maybe they even felt the suffering and the pain of the realization of a, a parent that in some way they're largely responsible for the sins of their son. We might choose almost any character in Scripture to illustrate this truth. David is a good one. David was a man who was acquainted with grief. In the 38th Psalm, verse 17, he writes, My pain is ever before me. Or in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1, he cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. This is the psalm that David wrote according to tradition when the prophet Nathan confronted him with the reality of his grave sin, that he committed adultery, and then he tried to cover it up by having a man murdered. 
David says here, as he said in the 38th Psalm, my pain is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. For the rest of his life, night and day, wherever he went, periodically, the reality of his sin flashed before him. It grieved him. David had other reasons to grieve in his life. Towards the end of it, one of his sons, Absalom, the apple of his eye, rebelled against him. He incited an insurrection. And things became so difficult that David was forced to to flee Jerusalem. He took refuge in the wilderness where many years before he'd once hidden from King Saul. And eventually David's soldiers caught up with Absalom. And even though he'd given express orders not to harm him in any way, Absalom was killed. I'm not sure there's any more heartbreaking scene in all of the Bible than when that messenger brings David the news of Absalom's death. He says, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God that I died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David's great love for Absalom wouldn't allow him to rejoice at his death, even though it meant not only restoration of his kingdom, but even though it meant his life was spared. David was a dead man if Absalom didn't die. But his grief was great. One more example from the Old Testament, from the book of Job. The opening chapter of that book tells us about the title character, a man who was the wealthiest man in all of the East, but who lost it all in an instant. It tells us about his vast possessions, his 7,000 sheep, his 3,000 camels, his 500 yoke of oxen, his 500 donkeys. He lost them all. And in addition to that, he lost his children, seven sons and three daughters. And on top of that, he was afflicted with a terrible disease, head to toe covered with boils. All this was taken from him in a a matter of a few short days. He'd been blessed so greatly, and now he's brought down to the depths of despair. And and three friends come, theoretically, to to comfort him. But it says, when they arrived, Job chapter 2, verse 13, that they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. We could go on listing examples in this vein, but I think more comforting than any of these scriptural examples we might offer is the realization that our Lord also experienced grief. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 predicted of him seven centuries before his birth that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Later in that chapter, he says, surely he's borne our grief and carried our sorrows and that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. In Matthew chapter 23, we see one major element of that grief, rejection by his own people that he loved and that he came to serve. 
It says there that overlooking the city of Jerusalem, he wept and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you would not. Or again, on the night of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is a vivid picture of Jesus' deep grief from Luke's gospel. It says that when he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus certainly was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But it's not just the Lord Jesus. Even our Heavenly Father experiences this grief. You go back to the book of Genesis, and in some centuries after creation, we're told that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. You know, every example of grief suffered by men and women that we could look at in Scripture, they've all passed from the earth. They're not grieving anymore. But the grief of God continues to this day, and it will continue as long as this world stands because God's heart is broken. God grieves. God suffers when people turn away from him, when they rebel, when they don't want a relationship with him. And, of course, we continue to do that even today. And so God continues to grieve. You see, I think it's helpful for us when we face our own grief in life to recognize that all of these examples from Scripture, all these people from the past, all of our contemporaries, great men and women of God, past, present, and future, all of them have suffered grief. But more than that, it helps us immensely. It should encourage us to know that God himself grieves. You see, we're never alone when we grieve. One of the remarkable things about Scripture is that it never glosses over the problems of the human condition. We're never told that things are going to be easy. The problems of life are not denied. They're inevitable. In contrast to what's popular today, that God, you know, there's this idea that God just wants to bless you. He wants only good things to happen to you, and he's going to make those happen if you just serve him. Well, the Bible never says that God will keep us from grief. In fact, Jesus himself experienced it. 
Abby has a, a co-worker who's a sort of a, a skeptic, I suppose, but she's the sort that doesn't really want to discuss things so much as she just doesn't like any answer that you give her. And she told Abby recently that, tell your husband that I prayed, and right after that, half a dozen bad things happened to me. And I told Abby, well, next time she says that, tell her she's in good company because that same thing happened to Jesus. He prayed in the garden, if there's any way, remove this cup from me. But there wasn't a way. He had to suffer too. So Scripture never promises that God's going to keep us from the grief and the anguish that's so common in this world. It doesn't try to deceive us. It doesn't try to give us an alternate reality. Disappointment, death, decay, those things are inevitable for all of us. But what it does offer us in Christ is the strength to face that grief. God gives us the help to be able to endure it. He's given us hope of something better. He's given us a purpose for which to live. Christ has taught us to center our lives in him and on an eternal life with God. See, if this life is, is all that there was, if there wasn't anything more to it, that would be pretty miserable. That's an emphasis that Paul presents. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. To the church in Philippi, he wrote, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or literally as dung in order that I may gain Christ. A few verses later, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 16, he puts it this way. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know, we know, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that, that, would, we, we, would, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. To the church in Thessalonica, he put it this way. 
We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Finally, from the Apostle John, we have these encouraging words about the life to come. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In fact, through God's wisdom and through God's providence, sometimes the things that grieve us, sometimes our suffering, can somehow even work out to be beneficial to us. James, the brother of Jesus, puts it this way. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or in Paul's letter to Rome, we read in chapter 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God can take our pain and use it for good. And in fact, we know, as Paul says in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. That's not all things will be good. It's not only good things will happen, and it's not even good in our own limited sense or in our own good time. It's the ultimate good, God's good in his time frame. But ultimately, he's in control, and all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And we know, as he says at the end of that chapter, we read it a few moments ago, that no one is able to separate us from his love. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the words of the poet Annie Johnson Flint, God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. Now maybe you're here this morning and you're not in a relationship with God. You haven't availed yourself of that undying love. You're, you're grieving God because you're in rebellion against him. But I want you to know that he sent Christ and Christ suffered for you. He died for you so that you could be reconciled to God. And so I want to encourage you this morning to put your trust in him, to turn to God in repentance, to be buried in the waters of baptism, have your sins washed away, have that weight of glory, that promise, that hope that Paul talks about so much. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian. Maybe you're struggling with grief in your own life and you need the prayers of those who are here. Or maybe you're struggling with sin and the weight of that sin, that guilt, much like David of old, 
It's ever before your eyes and it grieves you. You're in pain. You need to repent this morning. If we can help you in any way, please make your need known now while we stand and while we sing. When we walk with the Lord